And all right, well, we're there in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter number seven, and we've been going through this uh, series for the last uh, couple of days on the subject of seven habits of highly effective uh, Christians. And of course, this was based on a book uh, that's actually just a business book, a leadership book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I was having our leadership class read through this book uh, together. And as I was reading it, every, every time I went to a new chapter and learned about a new habit, I kept connecting biblical principles with those habits. And I thought, you know, this would make a good basis for a sermon series. That's what we we're doing. And I'm not, I'm reading to you from the book, but it's primarily coming from the Word of God and showing these principles from the Word of God, of course. And the uh, series is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Christians. And the word effective means adequate to accomplish a purpose producing the intended or expected result. And that's what you want in your life. You want to be effective, you want to accomplish your purpose, and you want to produce the intended or expected result. And today, we're going to talk about what is the intended or expected result. On Wednesday night, we began the series with an introductory sermon called Inside Out. And we learned about the fact that if we're going to change, if we're going to grow, it needs to begin from the inside and work itself out. This morning, uh, we learned about habit number one, and it was be proactive. And it was about um, taking initiative and putting effort into what we do. Tonight, we're looking at habit number two. And habit number two is this, begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. Are you there in Ecclesiastes chapter 7? Look down at verse number 8. The Bible says this, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The Bible here tells us that better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And, you know, the reason for that is because a lot of things start off well, but they don't end up well. And God says, look, it's better to end well than to start well. And that should be encouraging for many of us because you might look at your life and say, I didn't really get off to a good start. I didn't really get off to a good start when it comes to my spiritual life or my Christian life. But the Bible says that better is the end of the thing than the beginning thereof. And habit number two is this, begin with the end in mind. And from this moment forward, have the end in Mind. Now, you're there in Ecclesiastes 7, uh, and look down at verse number 1, the first verse in the chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and uh, let me just give you a couple of things to write down, and I want, I'd like you to write these down if you're able to. Number one, beginning with the end in the mind allows you to live with purpose. Why would you want to live your life with the end in mind? Because it allows you to live with purpose. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, look down at verse number 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Notice the Bible says, here God is telling us that some things are better than other things. He says in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. He says in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointments. And then he says, and the day of death than, the word than there is referring to the fact that it's better than the day of one's birth. And when, when you read that, you might think to yourself, that's kind of odd because we, we normally are excited, right? When someone is born, when, when a, a new life begins, when a baby is born and there's a birth, we're excited about that. We're happy about that. And usually when there's a death, we are mourning over the loss and we see one as positive and one as negative. But God says that death 
and the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Notice verse 2. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning. And when he says house of mourning here, you could uh, look at that as referring to like a funeral. He says, look, it's better to go to the house of mourning, to go to a funeral where you're mourning someone's death, than to go to the house of feasting. He says, it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. You say, well, that's kind of morbid. Why would God say that? Well, notice what he says. He says, for that is the end of all men. He says, here's why it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, because everyone's life is going to end with a funeral. Unless you live, you know, through the uh, tribulation and you live to the rapture, we're all going to die at some point. He says better is to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. He says, look, everyone's going to die at some point. Now, I want you to notice the last part of verse 2. He says, and the living will lay it to his heart. When the Bible says there that the living will lay it to his heart, here's what he's saying. He's saying those of us that are alive should consider that our lives will one day come to an end. The living should consider that they will not always live. You ought to live your life with this idea that your life will one day come to an end. I want to read to you just a little excerpt from the book here, and it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a lengthy uh, excerpt. I'll, I'll read it as quickly. And this, this part of the book is actually uh, a well-known uh, part of this book. It's been uh, called or referred to as the funeral exercise, and I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. It says this, in your mind's eye, see yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. Picture yourself driving to the funeral parlor or chapel, parking the car and getting out. As you walk inside the building, you notice the flowers, the soft organ music. You see the faces of friends and family you pass along the way. You feel the shared sorrow of losing and the joy of having known that radiates from the hearts of the people there. As you walk down to the front of the room and look inside the casket, you suddenly come face to face with yourself. This is your funeral. Three years from today, all these people have come to honor you, to express feelings of love and appreciation for your life. As you take a seat and wait for the services to begin, you look at the program in your hand. There are to be four speakers. The first is from your family, immediate and also extended. Children, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents who have come from all over the country to attend. The second speaker is one of your friends, someone who can give a sense of what you were uh, as a person. The third speaker is from your work or profession. And the fourth is from your church or some community organization where you've been involved in service. Now think deeply. What would you like each of these speakers to say about you and your life? What kind of husband, wife, father, or mother would you like their words to reflect? What kind of son or daughter or cousin? What kind of friend? What kind of working associate? What character would you like them to have seen in you? What contributions, what achievements would you want them to remember? Look carefully at the people around you. What difference would you like to have made in their lives. And this is an exercise in the book that he actually wants you to go through and to think through these things. But the question is this, when you are gone, what will you have left behind? If you were able to attend your funeral, if you were able to be present at your 
funeral. And you know, for those of us that are saved, I don't know, you know, we're going to be in heaven, obviously. I don't know if God allows us to look down at our funeral. The Bible says that we're encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. But if you are allowed to look down at your funeral and people who know you, people who love you, your friends, your family, your co-workers, your church family, got up to speak about you, got up to give words about you, what would you want them to say? This is living with the end in mind. And why would you want to begin with the end in mind? Here's why. Because it allows you to live with purpose. Because the living should consider that they will not always live. Go with me to the book of Philippians, if you would. Philippians chapter number 3 in the New Testament. You've got the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And let me say this as well. Not only should the living consider that they will not always live, but the living should consider what are they living for. You got to ask yourself, when we, when we talk about this, begin with the end in mind. Live your life with the end in mind. You got to consider, what are you living for? What is it that you are uh, 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 trying to accomplish with your life? Are you there in Philippians chapter 3? I'd like you to look down at verse number 13. Notice the Apostle Paul. He wrote these words, and the Apostle Paul was a very accomplished man, someone who accomplished, a very effective Christian, a very effective soldier for the Lord Jesus Christ that accomplished much with his life. And he says this, Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Notice, he says, I press toward the mark. For the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. When the Apostle Paul says there, I press toward the mark, what he means by that is that in his mind, there was a goal. There was something he was trying to accomplish. There was something he was trying to do with his life. And the problem, the problem that I see with uh, many Christians and even non-Christians, those of us that maybe have found ourselves living non-effective lives, is that we're kind of just going through life aimlessly. You get up, you go to work, You go home, you eat, you sleep, you know, just so that you can get up and go to work and go home and eat and sleep, just so you can get up and go to work and go home and eat and sleep. And in between there, you might throw in some YouTube videos and in between there, you might throw in a vacation or two. But we basically just live our lives not really trying to accomplish anything. And here, today we're learning, tonight we're learning about the fact that if you want to live an effective life, you got to live with the end in mind. You got to realize that your life is going to one day come to an end and what you're going to accomplish needs to be accomplished while you are alive. The Apostle Paul accomplished so much for God because he kept pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I believe if you were to talk to the Apostle Paul, he would have always, and I said, said, hey, Paul, what are you up to? What are you doing? He would have always had a to-do list. Always told you, you know, even in his writings, you'll hear him say, yeah, I want to go to Spain. I want to go visit the uh, believers in Rome. I, I want to go here and I want to go there and I want to go uh, uh, start this church and accomplish this. And you know what? In my life and in your life, we always ought to be working towards something. We ought to be trying to accomplish something. We ought to be pressing towards the mark. Now, obviously, my mark and your mark might be different. You know, as a pastor, my mark might look like a ministry we want to start or some sort of uh, a new church function that we want to accomplish. For you, it might be uh, having to do with your, uh, with your career. And, and for all of us that are parents, it ought to be uh, with our children. And if you're married, with your marriages. But the, the point is this, you ought to live with the end in mind. 
Living with, beginning with the end, allows you to live with purpose. It allows you to live on purpose. It allows you to not live aimlessly. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. You're there in Philippians. If you just go backwards, you'll uh, have Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. While you turn there, let me read to you a little uh, section from the book here. He says this, It's incredibly easy to get caught up in an activity trap, in the busyness of life, to work harder and harder at climbing the ladder of success, only to discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. It is possible to be busy, very busy, without being very effective. If the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to, uh, closer to the wrong place faster. And the point is this, in your life, you got to consider, you got to really ask yourself, when I'm dead, what do I want people to say about me? We're going to look at it here, here in a minute, but the Bible talks about the fact that our lives are as a tale that is told. When I'm gone, you know, what do I want my wife uh, to say about me? When I'm gone, what do I want my kids to say about their dad? When I'm gone, what do I want the, the church family here, a Verity Baptist Church, to say about their pastor? When, I, when I'm gone, look, here's what we're saying. When, when you live with the end in mind, you can live on purpose, you can live with purpose, because you ought to consider what you're living for, because you ought to consider the fact that you will not always live. Go to 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 12. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we have this famous passage about the judgment seat of Christ. Let me just take a moment to speak to you about it before we jump into the text. This is, of course, the judgment of believers. There are two judgments the Bible tells us about. There is the judgment of unbelievers called the great white throne. Those who are not saved will stand before the great white throne, and they will be judged for their sins and thrown into hell. If you're saved tonight, praise the Lord, you'll never have to stand at the great white throne. Uh, You won't have to stand there to be judged. However, there is a judgment for believers called the judgment seat of Christ, where God is not going to judge us uh, based on our works to see whether we're going to go to heaven or not. That's already been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But at the judgment seat of Christ, he will judge our works to see how to reward us, what he's going to reward us for. And in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And he's using this analogy of fire to explain uh, how this is going to unfold. And this may very well be literal as well. But look at verse 12. The Bible says this, And if any man build upon this foundation... Now, the foundation there, he's referring to Jesus Christ, right? Because we're saved, we build our foundation on Jesus Christ, the rock of Jesus Christ. He says, now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, and these things here, these are materials of high value, gold, silver, precious stones, and these represent things that will last forever, things that are eternal. These are things that are not going to get consumed by the fire. If you put gold or silver or precious stones in a fire, they're not going to get consumed. They'll just get refined. So he says, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, but then he says there's other things that you can build as well. He says, wood, hay, stubble. This represents things that will not last. These are things that are temporal. These are things that uh, uh, will get burnt up 
with the fire. If you put wood in a fire, it will eventually get consumed. If you put hay in a fire, it will eventually get consumed. If you put stubble in a fire, it will eventually get consumed. And I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here. In verse 13, he says this, Every man's work shall be made manifest. The word manifest means it'll be revealed. It'll be made known. He says, we're going to be able to see what you gave your life to. We're going to be able to see what you gave yourself to in life. He says, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. And he's talking about the day of judgment because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work. Notice of what sort it is. The fire is going to try what kind of work it was that you gave your life to. Notice verse 14. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. God says, look, this is how I'm going to reward you. If I, He said, I'm going to take all the work you've ever done your whole life, and I'm going to throw it into this fire. He says, some of it is going to hopefully have been that which was eternal, gold, silver, precious stone. Some of it is going to be that which is temporal, wood, hay, and stubble. He said, I'm going to throw it into the fire, and he says, the, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Notice verse 14. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. So once the fire consumes all your work, whatever's left over, that's what you're going to get rewarded of. Now look, you're not going to get any rewards for wood, hay, or stubble. That's going to get burned up. The only way you'll get rewarded in heaven during the millennial reign of Christ is for the amount of gold, silver, precious stones that you have in, in, that, uh, in, in, that, uh, in that day of judgment. Notice verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now let me just say this. I'm not preaching about salvation tonight, but let me just uh, show you this. In verse 15, the Bible teaches us that it is possible to be saved and do absolutely no works. In fact, the Bible says that there's going to be some people who are going to get to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. Everything they've ever done is going to get put in the fire. And, and, and the Bible says, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. He's not going to have any rewards, but he himself shall be saved. And you say, well, how could this be? Well, if you think about the fact that, you know, at Verity Baptist Church, we will have 80, 70, 80, 90 soul winners go out every week and preach the gospel and get people saved. Think about the amount of people that we knock on doors, we get them saved, and those people never come to church, they never get baptized, they never read the Bible, they never do anything for God. They, they get saved, but they never accomplish anything for God. Those people are going to be standing in the judgment seat of Christ one day, and everything they ever did in life is going to get burnt up. Now, they will still be saved, the Bible says, they shall be, they shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So this verse is teaching us that it's possible. Don't let somebody tell you, well, if you're saved, you're going to have works. Well, then uh, the Apostle Paul must have been confused. Because he says, look, it's possible for someone to be saved and to do no works. But here's what he's saying. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy that everything you have was gold, uh, excuse me, wood, hay, and stubble. You want everything you had to be gold, silver, precious stones. And sometimes when you preach these things, go with me if you would to the book of James, uh, James chapter number four, towards the, if you start at the uh, end of the New Testament, uh, with the book of Revelation and head backwards, you'll have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter. 
Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter. And then you have the book of James, James chapter 4. And while you turn there, let me just say this. Sometimes when you preach these things, you know, people, they, they get really, uh, uh, you know, picky about, well, what exactly is going to be uh, gold, silver, precious stones, and what exactly is going to be wood, hay, and stubble? And here's what I would say. What I would say to you is this, that if you can, fit, if you can identify that what you are doing has eternal value, then there's, you can prob- you'll probably get a reward for it. And, you know, I, I'm hesitant to even give uh, an illustration, but let me just go ahead and give an illustration. And I don't, you know, I'll, I'll give the illustration of bowling. And I don't know of anybody in our church that, that is part of a bowling league, and if you are part of a bowling league, I don't know it, so I'm not picking on you. But I just think this is a, a, a silly illustration. You know, let's say you join a bowling league, and just every Friday night you spend two hours three hours, you know, you're a grown man, you come home from work, you have dinner, you put on your bowling shoes, and you head out to your bowling league. And look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with bowling. I'm not saying there's anything sinful with you going, you know, I don't know how bowling leagues work. If there's alcohol involved, obviously, you don't want to avoid those things. But, you know, maybe it's a Christian bowling league, and you're just out there, and you're just bowling away, or maybe it's all, you're just all by yourself. Just every Friday night, you spend three hours bowling all by yourself. You know, well, here's the thing. That's a huge waste of time. There's not going to be any rewards connected with that at all. Now, you know, if you take your kids and you spend time with your kids and you fellowship with your kids, then maybe there is some eternal value there. But do you understand what I'm saying? The point is not what you're doing. The, the, the point is what kind of sort is it? Is there any investment in what you're doing? You know, if you go and, and, and play basketball all alone by yourself, big waste of time. You take your kids, you take some, uh, you know, church guys out there and you fellowship together. Hey, now you're doing something spiritual. The point is this. What we do, we ought to do with the mindset of what will be said about us when we're dead. You don't want your kids saying, my dad would go bowling every Friday night while we stayed home, you know, and twiddled our thumbs. You know, what you want them to say is, hey, my dad would take me bowling all the time. My time was when Adam spent time with me. You know, and that's just a silly illustration, but the point is this. When you live with the end in mind, when you begin with the end of mind, you begin to live with purpose. Living, uh, beginning with the end of mind allows you to live with purpose. But let me give you a second thought tonight. Not only will beginning with the end in mind allow you to live with purpose, but beginning with the end in mind will allow you to live with perspective. Beginning with the end in mind will allow you to live with perspective. Now, let me read to you. You're there in James chapter 4, but let me read to you from the book here real quick. It says this, returning to the computer metaphor, and throughout the book, he'd been using this metaphor of of a computer. He says, returning to the computer metaphor, habit one, which if you remember, habit one is what we learned about this morning, being proactive, taking initiative, putting effort, not worrying about what you can't control, but working on that which you can control. He says, habit one says, you are the programmer. Habit two says, write the program. Habit one, being proactive, says, look, you are the programmer of your life. You're the one that gets to decide where you're going to put effort, where you're going to take initiative, what you're going to do. Habit two, begin with the end in mind, says, so then write the program. Since you get to decide where you invest your time, 
where you put your initiative, where you put your effort, since you get to decide what you're, where, where you're going to put your energy, then begin with the end in mind allows you to have some purpose. Well, where should I put my energy? Where should I be uh, uh, putting my effort? And beginning with the end in mind allows you to live with perspective. Notice there in James chapter 4, the first thing that you need to have perspective of is a perspective of time. A perspective of time. James chapter 4, look at verse 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city. Don't you know people who live their lives like that? What are you doing? You know, sometimes you look at young people and say, what are you doing? You're like, well, today or tomorrow, I might go get a job. Today or tomorrow, I might do my schoolwork. Today or tomorrow, I might start serving God. He says, go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Sometimes guys, you know, grown men, married men will complain about their finances or their careers. And I try to encourage them and say, man, you ought to do something. You know, maybe you need to start a business. Well, I don't know how to start a business. Well, maybe you need to read a book. Maybe you need to learn a skill. Maybe you need to figure out, you know, something you could do. And, 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 and you talk to guys sometimes, and sometimes you just want to shake them. You know, you talk to them, it's like, well, today or tomorrow, you know, I'll continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Notice what God says, verse 14. He says, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. He says, look, you don't know that tomorrow, tomorrow is not guaranteed to you. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen. Look, whatever you're going to do, do it today. Get some perspective of time and realize that what I'm going to accomplish, don't say, hey, today or tomorrow I'll become a better father. Become a better father today. Spend more time with your kids today. Well, today or tomorrow I'll become a better wife. No, become a better wife tonight. Oh, today or tomorrow, I'll become a better husband. No, become a better husband tonight. Become a better husband today. Become a better employer today. Become a better employee today. Hey, decide today. Get some perspective of time and realize, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So whatever I'm going to do, I better do it today. Go to the book of Psalms, if you would, Psalm 39. If you open up your Bible, right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms, Psalm 39. Look at verse 4. Psalm 39 and verse 4. See, beginning with the end in mind allows you to live with perspective. And you ought to have some perspective of time and realize that you don't have a lot of time. Your life is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Psalm 39, look verse 4. Lord, make me to know mine end. Notice what the psalmist says here. He says, Lord, make me to know mine end. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. Help me to begin with the end in mind. Help me to live my life knowing that my life will one day end. He says, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days. He says, help me to remember and realize that I I won't live forever. There's only a a certain amount of measure of days that I have. He says, what it is that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth. And mine age is as nothing before thee. He says, Verily, verily, every man in his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Go to Psalm 90 in verse 9. You're there in Psalm 39. Just flip over to Psalm 90 in verse 9. Psalm 90 in verse 9. Notice what the psalmist says. He says, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. He says, We spend our years as a tale that is told. 
The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. Notice what he says, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Here's what he's saying. He says you got to live with some perspective of time. Don't say, oh, tomorrow. I'll start reading my Bible tomorrow. I'll start being a soul winner tomorrow. I'll start tithing tomorrow. I'll start living for God tomorrow. No, live for God today. Get some perspective of time and realize that you don't, tomorrow's not guaranteed to you. You don't know what tomorrow will bring forth. Go to the book of Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter number 6, first book in the New Testament. Should be fairly easy to find. Matthew chapter 6. Not only does beginning with the end of my, in mind allow you to live with the perspective of time, but beginning with the end in mind allows you to live with the perspective of treasure. Because let's face it, as human beings, treasure or things are something usually many people live for just the next thing, the next toy. You know people like that, where they're just, they always have some new thing, some new gadget, some new, you know, there's just, it's just, that's what their lives is about. It's about this new, uh, you know, uh, whether it's clothes or whether it's an electronic, whether it's some sort of a vehicle. They're just living for things. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, the Bible says this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. And, I, and let me just say this. I, I don't believe that God is against you having nice things. But you ought not live for nice things. He says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, he says, hey, when you live for things, realize that things in this earth, they get destroyed. Moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. He says, you ought not live to lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. And while you turn there, do you remember the story of the rich fool? Who he built up his riches, he built up his barns, and, and he said, now I can eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, thou fool, for your soul will be required of you tonight. And when you live for things, you will live an empty life. But beginning with the end in mind will allow you to not only live with the perspective of time, but will allow you to live with the perspective of treasure. Now, in Matthew 16 and verse 26, we have a very famous passage that's often uh, used about salvation. And I believe that that is the correct interpretation. Matthew 16, 26, it says this, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And this is often used in the context of someone dying and going to hell. Hey, what, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world? What is the point if you're just the most rich, the most famous, the most accomplished person in the world, and then you die and go to hell? You lose your own soul. He says there's no point in living for things if you die and go to hell. But what I want you to notice is that in the book of Luke, in fact, go there if you would, Luke chapter 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke. In Luke chapter 9, we find the same principle, but now applied to Christians. And of course, if you read the Gospels, you'll remember that Jesus often repeated himself. Just like a preacher, if you listen to me preach for any length of time, you'll hear me say a lot of the same things, a lot of very similar things, because preachers often repeat themselves and they apply it differently. In Matthew 16, 26, 
This famous, famous verse is talking about an unsaved person who gains the whole world and then they lose, he loses his own soul. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 25, we find the same thing, but I believe that this passage is applied to a believer. Notice what he says. He says, For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Now notice, in, in, in Matthew 16, he said, if he shall lose his own soul. Here we're not told that this guy lost his soul, but we're told that he shall lose himself and that he shall become a castaway. And if you remember, Jesus taught about the fact that they who will uh, 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 find themselves shall lose themselves. And he's talking about the fact that, that if you try to live for self, if you try to live for self, you'll lose yourself. Because when you live for self, all you have at the end is yourself. There's nothing that you actually, you will lose your life that way. And here he says, if he, if, if he gained the whole world and lose himself or be a castaway, you don't have to turn there. But in 1 Corinthians 9.27, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you live, even as a believer, if you live for things, if you gain the whole world, but you get to the judgment seat of Christ and your life was worthless, you said, what advantage did that get you if you lose yourself or if you're a castaway? Paul said it this way. He said, if I start off in the ministry right and I end up wrong, then I'm a castaway. Then I got disqualified. Then I didn't finish right. And Paul said, look, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. 1 Timothy 6, 7, you have to turn there. The Bible says this, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Go to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're talking about beginning with the end in mind. Why do you want to do that? Well, you want to begin with the end in mind because it allows you to live with purpose. It allows you to live with purpose and allows you to live on purpose. The living should consider that they will not always live. And the living should consider what they are living for. We want to begin with the end of mind because it allows you to live with perspective. Perspective of time that I don't have a lot of time. That tomorrow's not guaranteed to me. But also perspective of treasure. That if I live my life to lay up treasure, if I live my life for just nice vehicles and nice homes and nice clothes and nice things, and there's nothing wrong with having nice things, but if that's what your life is about, you will have wasted your life. You will not be advantaged. There will be nothing that your life would have meant and lived for. And that's what we read about in the book. If, if you spend your life, if you spend your life fighting to climb that ladder of success just to get to the end and realize that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall, you'll have wasted your life. Here's point number three. Beginning with the end in mind allows you to live by priorities. Beginning with the end in mind allows you to live by priorities. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're actually going to dig into this uh, on Wednesday night with habit number three, which is to put first things first. But let me just say this. Beginning with the end in mind allows you to prioritize what should actually be important in your life. In the book, he says this, Habit 2 is based on principles of personal leadership. When you live with the end in mind, you can begin to lead yourself. 
you can begin to lead yourself in the right priorities and realize that there are some things that just don't matter. There are some things that just, they're not necessarily bad things, but they're just not things that have any eternal value. First Corinthians chapter 9, look at verse 24. Notice what the Apostle Paul said. He says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? He says, So run that ye may obtain. Verse 25, And every man that striveth for the mastery. He says, every man that striveth. What does that mean? That's talking about being proactive. The word strive means to put forth great effort to try to achieve something, so try to accomplish something. He says, and every man that striveth for the mastery, what's the mastery? That's the goal. That's the mark. That's the perspective. He says, is temperate in all things. The word temperate means self-restrained. He uses the example of an athlete. And you and I can think about maybe like an Olympic athlete. And you can think of these guys who spend years and years and years training. What, what are they training for? For the Olympics, where they're going to strive for the mastery, where they're going to try to go for the gold, where they're going to try to accomplish something. And that purpose allows them to live their life with priorities. An Olympian is not going to drive through a McDonald's at midnight and get a McFlurry. You know, they've got a very intense training regimen. They make sure they're eating all the right things. They make sure they're getting the right amount of sleep. They make sure they're working out and exercising. Why? Because they have a goal. Because they have a purpose. Because they're trying to accomplish something. And look, if people will do it, he says, now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. If an athlete will live a temperate life for a piece of gold, for a medal of silver, then why should you and I not live a temperate life for the rewards that will last for eternity in heaven? He says, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we, an incorruptible. He says this in the book, he says, management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right thing. And the question for you tonight is not, are you doing things right? The question is, are you doing the right thing? Beginning with the end in mind allows you to live your life in such a way that you'll have perspective, that you'll realize that you don't have a lot of times, that you'll have purpose, that you'll realize that not everything is something you need to be chasing, and that you'll live by priorities and begin to realize, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to accomplish. This is what actually matters in my life. Go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 will end right here. Philippians chapter 3. You're there in 1 Corinthians. If you go past 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. 1 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. He says this, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He says, But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He says, I press toward the mark. So what is it that effective Christians do? They are not only proactive, as we learned this morning. They not only take initiative and put effort and work on that which they can control. But as we learned tonight, they begin with the end in mind. Because better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. When you begin with the end in mind, that allows you to live with purpose. 
when you begin with the end in mind, that allows you to live with perspective, perspective of time, perspective of treasure. When you live with the end in mind, that allows you to live with priorities. So you don't get to the end of your life having struggled and fought to climb the ladder of success just to realize that it was leaning upon the wrong wall. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to learn this principle of beginning with the end in mind. Lord, help us not to have fought well in the wrong fight. Lord, help us not to have lived and, and strived and put effort and energy into things that we'll find out at the judgment seat of Christ just didn't matter. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be effective Christians that are proactive, but that are also living with the end in mind. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have brother.